Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Only 12% of Canadian students are considered high math achievers. A new international ranking is giving Canada a bad grade. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. These numbers are part of a steep decline in Canadian math skills. Our question, why are your kids struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? She's an A student, come to math, she just cannot grasp it. She feels less than, she doesn't feel as smart as other people. He has ADHD and a learning disability in math. And his teacher is telling him, what are we going to do? Or telling us, what are we going to do? How are we going to get him past and get him through this year? My youngest daughter's in grade 10. She was in a class where they were going over fractions, how to work with fractions. I mean, that is grade five math. And she said so many of the kids couldn't do it. Six eights or 48, six nines or 54. I can still remember my grade three teacher leading our class in a chorus of times tables, and I can recite them like familiar old phone numbers. But I also remember struggling with grade 12 math and withdrawing from the course so it wouldn't bring down my average. Which is all to say I have a complicated relationship with math, and I'll bet a lot of you do as well. A few days ago, the latest numbers from PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, showed average math skills for Canadian students have been dropping, and the results renewed debate about our education system and about whether we're properly preparing Canadian students for success in science, tech, even day-to-day life. Our question, why are your kids struggling in math, is a time to rethink how we teach it. In the last half hour, a timely AMA, tis the season for respiratory illnesses, and we have a pediatric infectious disease doctor coming in to answer your questions about kids, COVID, flu, and RSV. What should they be watching for, and when should you take your child to the emergency room? That is in 90 minutes. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Checkup, the podcast, cross-country checkups live broadcast from December 10th, 2023. I don't really like math because it's just not my favorite subject and I'm not that good at it. I don't I don't like it at all. I'm starting pre-calculus in next semester and I hate it and I haven't even started it. Math, it's just boring, you know. It's kind of like the students' least favorite subject. I guess some teachers make it really fun and do a lot of like, games with it. I'd make it more like sort of relatable, I guess. I can just imagine teachers cringing at hearing that one student say, I don't like it and I haven't even started it. Those are the voices of some math students here in Vancouver and thanks to the CBC's Ann Penman for collecting that tape. Let's turn now to someone who's been teaching math for 31 years. Heidi Tones worked in high schools in and around Owen Sound, Ontario until she retired last summer, though she still fills in occasionally as a supply teacher and we've reached her in Georgian Bluffs, Ontario. Hi, Hi, Ian. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm great. And I am passionate about this multifaceted issue. Um, So I'd like to thank you for bringing this, uh, you know, to the forefront and 
to all the administrators, teachers, and parents out there who really want the best for our kids. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to the conversation we're going to have with callers over the next 90 minutes. Take us inside the classroom. (laughs) What are you seeing? What have you been seeing from students that backs up this report that tells us that, uh, that math scores in Canada are declining? Well, I can tell you that I have lots of friends who are elementary teachers, high school teachers, professors, people in Teachers College right now, and we are all saying the same thing, and I've been saying it for a long time, that there is a decline in um, math ability, but at the same time, uh, the reading is very weak as well. And so I think uh, the PISA score that you referred to is really just a catalyst, and it's going to help us peel back some social layers of problems that are happening that we see in math because math is tested for EQAO and PISA and things like that. But in fact, uh, my friends and my colleagues and I are finding it uh, pretty much across all subjects, Um, nutrition, phys ed, geography, everything. I I know that this is a complex answer to the question I'm about to ask you, and it depends on individual perspectives, and obviously mm-hmm. experts have studied it as well. But 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 as a veteran teacher, your personal mm-hmm. perspective, why do you think we're seeing that decline that you say goes beyond math? Well, I thought long and hard about this since about 2012, because we have been seeing that in the schools that I've been teaching. Um, I think one of the driving problems is devices. It is very easy to want to be on your device. And so it's a lot easier than putting in the grunt work that is required in the kind of class that math is, which to build skill requires uh, paying attention in class, taking notes, doing all the seat work. And more than that is actually checking your work for correct answers, for accuracy. And some students will say they're all done their work, but they haven't actually learned the skills yet because they haven't gone through the rigor that is required. So there's that that's at the high school level. But if uh, what I heard some uh, who called in earlier said that they uh, really struggled with fractions and um, that that's a grade five concept. And we're definitely seeing something as simple as that at the high school level. And so in the elementary panel, they have so much to teach. They're working so hard and they're so caring and want to deliver a good curriculum. But there's so much that they have to teach um, on a day-to-day and a week-to-week basis that if the students are not attending and engaged on a daily basis in math, they're moving on to the next year and then they're coming to high school and we're trying to fill the gaps. And there are books called Fill the Gap. And that's pretty challenging as that one parent said their grade 10 daughter had commented on that they were still working on fractions, which is not really part of the grade 10 curriculum. You're supposed to use it in grade 10, but you're not supposed to be learning it in grade mm-hmm. 10. That would be part of my answer. And, and, you know, there's math and then there's math. And by that, I mean, like, I, 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 I think of the struggles I had in grade 12 math when we mm-hmm. shifted into algebra. But, but really, when I think about it, up until then, things went pretty well. And there are a lot of math concepts. I, I probably know more math than I give myself credit for. Um, but I also, know yeah. less, I also know less math than a lot of my friends. <laughs> so, you know. Well, and you, you know. really hit on a good point, if I could just interject. Sure. Because I think what's happened, too, is some of the math has been pushed down because we don't have grade 13 anymore. Um, we're doing algebra in grade 8. And, you know, I was just supply teaching in a grade eight class the other day. And, you know, you move from concrete math where you're touching slices of a pizza that talk about fractions. But then you've got to move to the abstract. And when we start to move to the abstract, that's when kids can't hold the concepts in their head. They have to really 
embed them into their brains through practice. And so when we get to that stage, you you will find that the wheels start to fall off the cart. And so, you know, at the high school level, what we really encourage is for students to have opportunity uh, in the future is to stay at the highest level of math that they can. But choosing the right path is so important. Not everybody needs calculus to move on into their adult years, whether it's post-secondary or going straight to work. So we have workplace math at high school, which teaches you leases and um, compound interest if you want to, you know, invest your money or, mm-hmm. or how to rent a car and things like that. Yeah, that's good to hear that there's that you can have success without calculus. Um, so uh, so t- tell me what it's like inside the classroom when you have a student who is struggling and and what you see in terms of their it's got to it's got to be frustration and at times it has to be questioning you know their self image but but uh, tell us what you see right well i have taught uh, lots of different levels of grade 9 10 and 11 math and i would say i spend you know about the first 3 weeks of school really helping to set up the tone of the classroom and the requirements of the student for their own personal success. And what I really try to emphasize is that that's what it's all about. It's not about me. It's not about uh, test scores. It's really about their personal uh, gain of their uh, of themselves, but also of the math content. So we see at high school organizational skills, work completion, not coming to class with uh, the supplies, pencils, calculators that I call home. I'm that teacher who calls home at the end of the first week. And uh, the parents are like, well, I provided all those things. So I think what sometimes happens at the high school level is the students don't really want to involve their parents anymore. And so by the time they've let their parents know that they're struggling and they're frustrated, then the parents are pretty frustrated. Um, but what what I find works is if I can work with those kids one-on-one and help break down where their gaps are. But you can't do that all class long in a class of 32 when you've got a huge variety of of uh, physical abilities and also um, sometimes intellectual ability. Sometimes mm-hmm. people are not in the right level. So really what it requires is coming in at lunchtime. And every math teacher I know sits in their room at lunch to help individual one-on-one students. But a lot of high school students don't want to spend their lunch hour doing that. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely um, one of the things I would add is there are a lot of resources at the high school available to all students of all levels at any age. And it takes a mature student to see that that's what they require. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, again, it was a long time ago that I was in high school, but I, I did, you know, pretty well in school. And and I was embarrassed to think that there was this one course that I needed help with. So I mm-hmm. didn't I didn't seek out that help. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's that, that's bad. I should not have done that. <laughs> We're here with live. Well, I mean, I'd like to think of it as a teacher and that all teachers help people see, like, you. I'm not going to be a great guitarist. I'm not going to be a great programmer but you know you you just you still need to do your best to move through and the thing is with high school is you need three credits to graduate in math Mm -hmm. and I think that really frustrates some students and some parents and they don't see why that is a requirement and I think that's another discussion we could get into. We're here live with Heidi Tones, a recently retired high school math teacher who worked mostly in Owen Sound, Ontario. And our question today on Cross Country Checkup, why are your kids struggling in math? Why are kids generally struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? And you can take part in the program by calling us at 1-888-416-8333. I'm going to give you another phone number as well. This is what you can use to text comments, 226-758-8924. And Heidi, my last question to you is this. When these 
these PISA scores come out, when they show that math uh, ability is declining, they also show that Canada is actually not doing badly compared to other countries, though mm -hmm. that means that a lot of those other countries are seeing declining math scores as well. So, you know, is it good news? Is it bad news? From your perspective, how concerned are you with not even just the PISA scores, what you're seeing in the classroom when it comes mm -hmm. to math, math ability? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I am very concerned because what I think it shows is a grit. And I know that's been going around with TED Talks and stuff, a grit that we need to help students see. When I was 15, I didn't know what was good for me. I didn't know what I was going to be doing in 25, 35, 50 years. And I think that uh, that confidence and to keep the expectations high so that students realize they are capable of this because I think we will continue to see our math scores go down. So I am very concerned because I think it is showing the bigger picture of what is happening in all of the courses in school. And I think we have a world-class education. So I'm very proud to be part of that. Um, and even as I continue into my um, retirement where I'm mm. supply teaching, but I truly believe that kids are capable of this and we need to build that confidence in them and their parents and to set them up for success, but they need to take the responsibility to do the follow through and the work completion. There are so many great teachers across the country that can be life-changing for students. I think my parents were two of them and Heidi, it's pretty clear mm -hmm. that you have been one as well. Uh, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. And thanks for giving voice to a boots on the ground teacher. I really okay. appreciate it. Heidi Tones, retired math teacher. Coming up, I'll be speaking to Joel Westheimer, an education expert who says math teachers shouldn't panic, and Heidi certainly is not panicking, about the latest OECD report card and that the tests themselves have limitations. So that's an interesting perspective. And our show today is not just limited to math parents struggling to teach their kids. We'd also like to hear from math students, teachers, tutors, or math challenged adults. Our question, why? Why are our kids struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? Our number, 1-888-416-8333. Some of you already calling in. Uh, you can also go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. But before I go to the phones, I want to bring in another guest. Uh, Linda Colgan is a retired professor of elementary mathematics at Queen's University. She has taught in classrooms, built curriculums, and authored textbooks on mathematics. And I know the grammarians among you will want me to say built curricula. So I'll say that. Uh, we reached her in Kingston, Ontario. Hi, Linda. Hi, Ian. How are you? Good. So what's your view? This, this study that suggests that uh, Canada's overall math scores have dropped by 15 points uh, over time. What do you think is behind that decline? Well, thank you for raising the question. Why are struggles in math? Why are kids struggling in math? Mm -hmm. And there are two reasons that I would like to um, respond to. And that is in Canada, we start too late worrying about children. It's hmm. too late when it gets to high school. There are so many chasms that have been built up over time. What we have to do is focus on early mathematics. The mathematics that happens in kindergarten, grade one, grade two, grade three, is absolutely critical. And we know, for example, that children's understanding of number, their spatial sense understandings at those grade levels are predictors of their success in all other subjects later in their career. So we, we don't have 
specialized teachers who understand children's mathematics development. We've heard a lot about the science of reading. I'm not going to say we can adapt a, a science of math because mm -hmm. mathematics has many more challenges, I believe, than reading. Mm -hmm. But we certainly need to get our attention based on specialized teachers in those formative years. The other thing is that we start too late in our teacher preparation. It's not good enough to have a very short program post-graduation. We need to have teachers who are learning the mathematics for the classroom and learning the pedagogy of that mathematics at the same time, concurrently. I would say over a period of three or four years, we need our teachers to have truly reflective understanding of both education and mathematics. And so we have to start much earlier. Mm -hmm. One of the classic questions that students will ask teachers, or actually it's a statement they'll mention to teachers, whether they're learning Shakespeare or math or physics is, I'm not going to use this later on. Why does this even matter? What does the research say about math education in early years and success for students later on? Basically, what we're learning from the diagnostic tests that are being done at the kindergarten level is that those, when children are achieving early on in their mathematics trajectory, in their learning trajectory, they are going to understand how mathematics can actually help them, how mathematics can actually be part of their lives. Your last guest talked about the fact that there's a problem in the fact that high school students have to take three math courses. There's an even bigger problem, Ian. Less than 50% of Canadian students graduate with a grade 12 math or science credit. That eliminates them from between 65 to 75 percent of programs at community colleges, apprenticeships, and at university. We have to understand value mathematics, the way that it, mathematics is valued in other cultures, to convince our students that we actually use mathematics every day in ways that we may recognize or ways that we may not recognize. We're speak I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm having some renovations done in my home. I have been talking to the plumber and I've been talking to the carpenter and I've been talking to the tradesmen that are in and out of my home. And I've been complimenting them on their mental math skills. I'm watching them doing fractions. I'm watching them doing decimals. I'm watching them understanding how space works, how objects work, how negative space works. Those are all skills that we begin to learn in our elementary curriculum. And what we're not doing is establishing that base foundation well enough so that our children, as they are getting older, are going, oh, yeah, I remember that. I get that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I know the application of that. 
Yeah, that's uh, that point is really well made, and and uh, I just yeah, you think about the number of applications that a basic uh, understanding of math has in our day to day life. We're speaking live with Linda Colgan, a retired professor of elementary mathematics at. Queen's University. Our question today, why are your kids or why are our kids struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? Call us at 1-888-416-8333. You can text us as well. That number is 226-758-8924. And, and Linda, we, uh, I, I know that one of your specialties is in science communication. Uh, how can teachers learn to be effective math communicators? I think one of the things that we have to remember is that in order to be an effective teacher, and I'm focusing on mathematics today, in order to be an effective mathematics teacher, you have to understand it from a number of perspectives. You have to understand the application, you have to understand what it means, you have to understand how it does what it does so that you can make it interesting, so that you can make it relatable, so that you can make it engaging. If we are only able to present mathematics as a very, very stagnant subject on a piece of paper in a textbook, we have no hope of inspiring and engaging. We have to learn how to decompose complex mathematics so that it is accessible to children, so that it is understandable to children, so that they can actually see it on an everyday basis. And that takes work. There are many wonderful, creative, brilliant mathematicians, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure they're the right ones to actually be telling people how to teach math because in many cases, they can't dial it down <laughs> and communicate it in a way that a grandmother would understand it. Yeah. I always tell my students, if you can't explain it, in such a way that your grandmother can understand it, then you don't really understand. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something I've learned as a journalist is that you know you literally can explain rocket science to somebody. It doesn't, and, and and but it comes down to exactly as you're pointing out with math, how well you actually understand it, and and then you have to have the skills to to simplify it. But uh, if you can do it for rocket science, I'm sure you can do it for math as well. And that's where we have a problem, Ian. We're not giving our teachers a fair shake mm -hmm. by giving them the in-depth education that they need over time to learn and love mathematics as a subject in also learn and love mathematics from the perspective of teaching it. What are the developmental stages? What are the trajectories of children? What are they able to do? What could they do more? How do you remediate on the spot? Mm -hmm. How do you do a dynamic assessment? It's not trivial to be in a classroom, but we make it trivial by reducing the number of hours that we give to the preparation of math teachers. Math is a very specialized subject. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, Dr. John Mighton talks a lot about this as mathematics as being a ladder. And bottom line is, it is a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. And if the steps on the ladder are too high, children are going to fall off. If there are rungs missing on the ladder, children are not going to learn. We need to construct mm -hmm. a ladder that our children can, you know, can climb and learn 
and feel a sense of accomplishment as they go up every step. Mm -hmm. But that requires a teacher who can create play at the kindergarten level that's purposeful at the middle school level that is exciting. Like, how could you go out and measure a tree if you didn't have a measuring tape? What could you do? You know, you have to know the math to teach the math. You're a, you're a great communicator, and I think at the end of the 90 minutes uh, of the show that we're talking about this topic, we may actually have people excited about math, which is a, a good thing, I Linda. Would, thank you I very much. Thank you. <laughs> Linda Colgan is a retired elementary mathematics professor at Queen's University, and she spoke to us from Kingston. Coming up, uh, we're opening up the phone lines. We have lots of people waiting to get on the air, looking forward to hearing your calls. Maybe you have a math ace living at home. Maybe you're that ace. Give us a call. Our question, why are our kids struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? Our phone number is one 416 8333 You can also connect with us by going to CBC ca slash aircheck. And that is how Amy Howe got in touch with us. She's in Truro, Nova Scotia. Hi, Amy. Hi. How are, are you? Good. What's your relationship with math? Well, I guess I have uh, quite an intimate relationship with math in that um, my background is an elementary teacher. So I've really been enjoying the conversations that people are talking about, and especially the last caller saying how important it is to have that strong foundation in mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I taught in Nova Scotia for what 15 years. And then since then, I've moved over to Europe. I worked in the Netherlands for a couple of years, and now I'm in the UK. So hmm. um, I think my passion for mathematics comes through in the training that I do with teachers. So when I heard that this was about you know, why are children struggling and um, sort of, you know, is it, how, do we need to rethink how we're teaching it? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I do. And it's, it's been absolutely fascinating to look at international curriculums. But I guess what I want to start by saying is Canadians shouldn't be panicking. Um, and I think someone mentioned it on the show that it's, you know, we as Canadians may be struggling, but what I found is that it's a global issue. Mm-hmm. Well, and in fact, the data does show that, that so not only are math skills declining among Canadian students, but we're still doing pretty well compared to the rest of the world. How can those two things be true at the same time? Well, presumably it means that in other countries, other major uh, OECD countries, uh, math skills are declining as well, Amy. Yeah, 100%, Mm -hmm. Um, which is why I'm able to, you know, have a consulting company over in the UK and work specifically with teachers. Um, sadly, there isn't a formula. You know, mathematics is about formulas, but I don't think that there is a formula to fix it. But I think a lot of really good points have been made today. Yeah. Um, and one of them being, you know, I think what I want to do is I want to make teachers passionate about teaching mathematics and not fear it. Because that fear tends to be passed on to the students. We have parents that are fearful of mathematics sending their children saying, you know, it's okay if you're not very good. I wasn't very good. And sort of that that concept of mathematics being so difficult. And and what I want to do is reignite the passion. And so I if, want so a few times, Amy, uh, sorry, but a few times, Amy, I, I've talked about uh, like live on a program uh, that I was bad at math and then I get angry emails from people saying, you know, you shouldn't say that. It sounds <laughs> negative. You know, you just need to have a positive attitude. But I mean, in your experience as a teacher, th- there must have been some kids who 
we're bad at math. Like, how do you deal with that? I mean, we're all on a continuum of learning. There are children that really get it really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, as you would say about, you know, we could all play the piano. Are we all going to be, you know, classical pianists by the end mm-hmm. of it? No. Um, so we, you know, obviously there is that continuum where children are struggling. But what we need to do is make sure that they have some sort of a foundation, figure out what that baseline is and move them forward and keep that curiosity Mm-hmm. And keep that keep them engaged in mathematics and not just sort of lose hope uh, because it is a skill we need absolutely every single day. We may not need, you know, and I'm only speaking as an elementary teacher, so I'm not looking at what skills they need on a high school level. I'm looking mm-hmm. at an elementary level. But what I also was interested in is how high school teachers are teaching about fractions and decimals and place value because children are coming into high school not solid on that. And so I feel my job is to engage teachers and perhaps give them a different way of teaching mathematics Mm -hmm. so that Um, their children are engaged. And I talk about, you know, mathematics shouldn't be a spectator sport. It's not just a worksheet. It is, they have to do it. They have to see it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we do have a, a, professor of education uh, coming up on the program in maybe about 20 minutes time. So we'll, and he studied this issue and we'll get his academic view of this. But one of the things that's nice on this program is whether it's from teachers like yourself or parents or students, we're going to get sort of lots of anecdotal perspectives on this. And Amy, let's ask for yours, whether it's a classroom in Truro, Nova Scotia or in Europe, um, why, why do you think math scores have been declining? I think... As I say, I don't. I don't think there is one particular answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think instead of why are they declining, maybe we should ask how can we improve them. Y- you mm-hmm. know, maybe we flip that question on how we can improve them. Yeah. And I think that's what I want to go into the classroom and say. Well, if this isn't working, what can we do differently? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm bringing maybe a different slant on teaching mathematics with mm-hmm. a different tool. Um, but I do believe that children need to have that hands-on learning. Um, that solid foundation comes from not just a teacher saying, you know, these are the even numbers and getting them to rhyme them off, but actually getting children to have that reasoning in mathematics. So they, they can describe what they're doing, explain what they're doing, you know, all the way through to justify what they're doing and then proving what they're doing by using a tool and saying, as one of the callers said, if you can explain it to your grandmother, Mm -hmm. well, it's, when I teach mathematics, we use a tool so that they can show their peers and the teacher where, you know, A, where the yep. misconceptions are coming from, where they're going wrong, but also, you know, can they share that understanding with other children? Because we don't all, we don't all learn the same way. Yep. Uh, and sometimes we need a tool to to show that. Okay. Amy, thank you very much for calling. You're welcome. Let's look at how some people uh, have been reaching out via social media and online. Carrie Ann McKay got in touch with us via AirCheck. She's in BC. When my eldest was in grade six, she was struggling in math and we noticed she hadn't memorized her times tables. We asked the teacher and they explained that the new math system wanted kids to understand why two times two equals four instead of memorizing two times two equals four. When COVID hit shortly after and the kids stayed home, we decided to have her memorize her times table like my grade three teacher. She has been fine in math ever since. Angie Smith via X. 
Twitter. Um, I'm rubbish with math, but I can get through it. Thankfully, my son is amazing with it. But because of our curriculum, he doesn't get pushed to do more because of so many struggling students in the class. Lita Pear via Aircheck in Grand Falls, Windsor, Newfoundland and Labrador says, I think we need to get back to basics. When a student doesn't know how to count money at a cash, for example, 25 cents plus 5 cents is water, how much to give back to a customer when counting it out. So you sure don't know how to calculate or figure out algebra if you don't have those basic skills. And Christina B on uh, X Twitter I was always good at math and enjoyed it, but many of my students aren't. I think the constant messages, girls are bad at math and Canadian students are getting worse at math, etc., are counterproductive given the calculators have taken much of the tedium out of math teaching. That focus should be on making math fun, which we've already heard from some of the experts. Why are our kids struggling in math? Why are test scores going down? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? That's our question today on Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanneman live in Vancouver, and you can give us a call if you'd like to take part in the program, 1-888-416-8333. Kate Dickens is in Ottawa. Hi, Kate. Hi. You are a second-year university student, I see here, and you are taking statistics. How's that going? Oh, you know, <laughs> I've called into this podcast, for, I've called into this channel for a reason, so okay. All I'm right. pretty passionate. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. so tell us more about, so why do you have to take statistics in your second year? Yeah, so I am a, so I actually tried to avoid it, funny <laughs> enough. However, I decided to major in psychology and then learned that through that I have to take a research, I have to take a statistical methods class where I learn how to analyze different research and actually conduct research mm-hmm. and learn about all the different types of populations and everything like that for all different psychological reasons. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but how is it going learning stats? Um, like pretty bad, honestly. <laughs> I That's totally okay. I just prepped to, to answer that. Um, I, I think for me right now, it was super discouraging because I really came, I didn't come out of high school with the strongest in math, but I came out of high school being a very, very good student, like very hardworking, like really good grades. Mm -hmm. And so having come into this specific statistics course, it was really, it was really discouraging to see myself doing so poorly, even when I took data management in high school and also took a stats class in first year university just to make sure that I was okay with it. It was just super discouraging to see that. And so Kate, you know, again, as I say on this program, we're going to get lots of anecdotal perspectives on this, which is exactly in the wheelhouse of this program. So let me ask you your sense of this as a second year university student. Why do you think you're struggling with the stats? Do you think the stats course, do you think it's just because of, you know, our brains all work differently? Do you think it's because of the way you were taught in the past? Is it because of, you know, some people that just kind of give up, like they don't, they don't, you know, they kind of think, I used to do this sometimes, like I used to think, well, I'm good at this, I'm bad at that, and the things I was bad at, I remain bad at it. What do you think's going on? I honestly think it's everything you hit on there. Your first point as like all of our brains are different, that mm-hmm. is, that's just factual. Like as, a, again, as a psychology major, we learn to study every single person's brain is different. We all learn differently. Some people learn as visual learners. Some people learn as very analytical or some people learn just by taking notes or even not even listening and just doing practice questions. So from there, I think 
Um, what that's like, sorry, I'm forgetting your question. Apologies. Well, no, just, just the, the reasons behind why you think you're struggling with second year stats in university. So mm-hmm. one of the things you just said is our brains are all different. That's certainly how I feel. I used to like some courses for me came really easy and, and, and some didn't. Um, but then there are a couple of other things I'm wondering about. And that is, you know, the way that you were taught math in the, in the past, whether that has an impact. And the third thing I was wondering is if you think any of this has to do with your own kind of self-confidence about different courses, because as I was saying, mm-hmm. for me, you know, I, I, I felt more confident about some, some courses than others. So yeah. How do, how do you feel about that? Um, definitely the way you're taught in the past can have a huge impact on how you learn in the future. It's, mm-hmm. it's just fundamental. Like, again, like how people have said, getting back to basics and learning on that is huge. How I, how I was taught in the past, except, aside from an elementary school, I was taught in math, throwing a slide up on the board telling you this is how it is, giving one or two practice questions, and then class is done, and I'm sent home to do it by myself. And again, that got me nowhere in high school. I barely passed grade nine math. I barely passed grade 10 math. And quite frankly, one of the only reasons we did was because we were, I did, was because we were in Ontario, and I was thankful enough that my grade couldn't drop after the pandemic had hit. (laughs) So I think even then, it was such a huge learning the fundamentals and the way that kids learn in classrooms is completely different. And I do have to give credit where it's due. Some my high school teachers, re, like I put in the work and, but even they were dedicated to trying to help me learn. Like they would stay in, in their lunch, they would take it off and they would sit down and help me and three other students wow. try to get these concepts, but it would never, it would never click. So again, that leads me back to everyone's brain is different. So how can we try to adapt the classes? And again, the other thing I can only think of is maybe smaller class sizes, or again, like someone was saying before, more specialized teachers in the program to be able to adapt to these different kids and their needs. And as far as my self-confidence issue, I really kept pushing. I think if if I got my mom on the phone, she would probably be like, Kate worked day and night. There were multiple <laughs> walks that I took so long because I was so discouraged by math, but I kept pushing through, even though I knew it would even though I knew it was bad. Like I literally, to be completely honest, Mm -hmm. I literally got a 55 in my class, in my stats class this year. And I cheered and my mom cheered. And it was a big deal being able to pass that because I wasn't, again, learning under the same conditions that I had been before. And even then, sorry, I'm totally rambling. But even then, in, in my first year stats class that I took first year, what was so different, and I excelled in that class. I did really, really well in that class. My prof was going and writing on the board, and he would give participation points and give these interactive perspectives, which made people feel like they had confidence in themselves, because even when one person would ask a question, he's like, you get a point. Yes, go you. <laughs> it, would, it would be so positive and uplifting, and we just And I just haven't gotten that this year or in a lot of past classes because I was made to feel ashamed that I wasn't even made to feel ashamed. It was totally myself that if I asked questions, I would be seen as stupid or couldn't get it right. Mm -hmm. And that's not the reality of it. But that's what turned into my self-confidence when I stopped being good at math. Yeah. And all of my friends will go to math around me. You know, it's interesting. You, you you said how you and your mom cheered when you got your mark back for your stats course. I was actually going to use that same verb in a different context. And it's this. 
you sound like you've done everything right and you sound so enthusiastic and I'll bet you there are a lot of people listening to the program right now, Kate, that are cheering you on and uh, I'm so happy that you called in and uh, I hope that uh, you get your stats course, you learn what you need to learn, you get it behind you and you enjoy the rest of your psychology studies. Thank you. And can I just make one final point? Is sure. that your, it is, you can be successful without math. Like you totally can. And I think I had to come to that challenging realization last year mm -hmm. that I can still be completely successful. And anybody else who's listening, who's had a similar experience to mine can still be so successful without learning Y equals MX plus B or the line of a slope. Yeah. I, th I think that's a really good point. Although at the same, and I mean, if that weren't the case, uh, my life would be very different. Like, I'm really glad that I didn't need to know calculus. But I do think you and I probably know a lot more math than we give ourselves credit for. So when it comes to figuring out square footage or balancing a, a checkbook, although my wife is going, when's the last time I balanced anything? But anyway, um, you know, we, we like there is there must be a basic level, Kate, of math literacy. And I bet you both you and I have it. But on the calculus stuff, yeah, I think there is success without that. Agreed. Agreed. Right. Okay, good luck in, in university. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. And if you're listening and you're thinking, man, like, you know, you need to have that and do not dismiss the importance of calculus in real life, well, give us a call, 1-888-416-8333 or go on to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Why are our kids struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it in Canada? Let's uh, go to Stratford, Ontario. Rachel Meyer is calling us. And Rachel, I see you're a parent. Uh, yes. And uh, so how do you feel about the, as a parent, about the way that your kids learned math and how we teach it to them? Um, I was replying to the, the question, do we need to ch teach math mm -hmm. differently? And we definitely do. Okay. Uh, I gave um, the example of our oldest son. He came home in grade five. Now, this is some years ago, but he came home in grade five with a calculator on the list. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to the teacher about it at the parent-teacher night, and she said, well, uh, they need to learn to use the tools that are available to them. I said, well, a lot of these kids won't even be able to do their multiple multiplication tables or div long division yet, and they need to learn to use the tool that they have between their ears. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't get into it with the teacher because my, our son was very strong in math. And then our daughter was four years younger, and when she was in grade three, she got the same teacher, and she came home with the class supply list, and on it was a calculator in grade three already. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, there some of these children, you know, they won't, they won't do well in math, so we have to teach them how to use a calculator. And I thought <laughs> a calculator was designed by someone they use their brain to figure it out. So I think they need to rethink how they are teaching math, that it's it, like they said, you can make math fun. And learning by rote, like the one person talked about learning your multiplication tables and memorizing them, that's, that's a, an effective way of learning them. And, and, and Rachel, how are your kids at math? Well, my kids are f phenomenal at math, but that's mm -hmm. just because of their natural ability. And I mean, our oldest son, we lived overseas for two years. And that same teacher, when he was in grade five, he came home and he said, finally, I said, what do you mean finally? He said, finally, we're doing something in math that I was learning in grade one 
overseas. Mm -hmm. I wonder, though, if the calculator aside, if there are things that your kids were learning in class that helped make them so good at math, like like learned in class in Canada. No, I don't think so. I, I honestly don't, because I know we had one son who struggled a little bit, and we got him help with that. And uh, we, I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say the math program, but it was basically designed by a Japanese high school math teacher who mm-hmm. saw children coming in, students coming in who couldn't do basic math. And he was worried about his own children, so he designed, he designed the program that he developed basically on what they would need in the future and then dialed it back to down to what they would need at the elementary level mm-hmm. so that he could give his children the tools they needed. And so and this is something your your one kid who was struggling with math did outside of the classroom. Yes, yes, okay. we took him and he learned he did that and it it very much mirrored the way when we were overseas, because I did go in, you know, sometimes you were allowed to go in and, and sit in on a, on a class. Mm-hmm. And I went in and sat in on a math class. And I thought, mm, this is quite similar to what our oldest son was getting over yeah. there. So, so it wasn't, um, yeah. It, All right. It's not necessarily, and they went to the same school. So, yeah. well, I mean, our oldest son, of course, not um, at the yeah. lower grades. He started there in grade yeah. four, but um, yeah. So. All right. Rachel, thank you very much for calling us. Yes, well, thank you much, very much for bringing this up. It's very, very important because math, that's something we use every day in our lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people say, oh, you don't use math, but you do. Every, yeah. every day you're using yeah. math. So. All right. Thank you. And uh, if you would like to weigh in on this, you can give us a call at 1-888-416-8333. You're listening to Cross Country Checkup. We're live on CBC Radio, CBC News Network, and a handful of other CBC platforms. And our question is, why are our kids struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? How much does it matter? That's another thing that people have been talking about. One of the challenges parents face is how much the math curriculum has changed since they were in school. Joel Westheimer is a professor of education at the University of Ottawa and an education columnist for CBC Radio's Ottawa Morning Show, and he is in Ottawa. Hi, Joel. Hey, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. So when you saw the headlines this week about uh, how math skills are declining, because that usually was the headline, steep decline is what one newspaper said, what was your reaction to those stories? Well, let me be the first to say that the sky is not falling, okay? okay. Canada Canada ranks ninth out of 81 countries surveyed in the PISA results. Um, uh, we're, we're fifth out of 38 OECD countries. If you look at the four top performing provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec, where the ranks are even higher. So um, we're doing very, very well. And so the 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 first thing I want to say is the sky is not falling. The second thing is that um, scores did decline um, since the previous uh, set of exams, but scores declined um, worldwide. And of course, the big elephant in the room that we all have to say is there was a pandemic. Kids mm-hmm. were out of school for anywhere between two and seven months. Um, so, of course, there's going to be some 
loss of learning time right in that in that classroom and slowly people are are catching up but um let's start there right the sky is not falling now some people listening to this may be thinking why is this guy why is Joel Westheimer being such an apologist for lousy marks that uh, the Canadian kids are getting in school i mean you're a professor of education at the University of Ottawa you have no skin in this game other than analyzing how people are taught and and what they're learning um and so from your perspective you know, the metrics of PISA, the Program for International Student uh, Assessment, how how much weight should we be giving that? Probably a, a bit less than we are. I mean, the he, you know, headlines love to talk about the, the, the way that, that scores are declining. The problem is when we zero in on one assessment is we lose track of everything else that's taught in school. So here we're focusing on math scores and we start to lose track and and PISA also does uh, reading and writing and science, but we start to lose track of other things going on in schools. And even within particular subject areas, like within math, um, the PISA scores do not measure everything that's taught in math. And so the new forms of curriculum that some of your callers were talking about, um, sometimes called inquiry-based mathematics, also want students to be able to think mathematically, right? To think, to have outside of the box thinking, to be able to problem solve, not just through formulas, but through new situations. And PISA scores are not well-suited to assess some of those skills. So in other words, the curriculum is a bit ahead of where our assessments are. We we sometimes want to care about the things that we can measure, but we can't really measure all the things that we care about. And we care about both basic skills. Of course, basic skills are important, but also more sophisticated critical thinking skills that these tests are not, uh, are not so as well-suited um, to measure. It can be so tough in so many ways to be a parent, and that includes assessing the kind of teaching that your your kid is getting as you go through school. And I think way back, my kid's now in their late 20s, but when they were in school, like I just wasn't equipped to be able to assess those things. And so, and you must run into this, there are parents who remember having times tables drilled in their head. We just heard from a parent who was upset because their kid was uh, being kids, were being asked to bring calculators to elementary school math classes, and she felt that was wrong. What do you say to parents who are listening who think that, uh, you know, that we're just getting soft? We're not, we're not like you know, just forcing kids to to learn the way that maybe they learned or their their parents learned, um, and and that yeah, we're we're making changes and they're not for the better. Yeah, I don't think it's about getting soft, but it is about new ways of teaching and learning. And one of the problems with introducing new approaches to teaching any subject area, in particular with math, is that sometimes you end up with an extreme when what you want is a balanced approach. Uh, I'm not in favor of kids not learning their multiplication tables. Memorizing the multiplication table is a good shortcut. It allows you to to you know, do things quickly when you need to do things quickly. It allows you to build scaffold that you can put new knowledge on. On the other hand, I also want kids to know, as one of your previous callers said, why two times two equals four, not just that it equals four, because that kind of thinking is what enables people to apply their knowledge in newer situations. And so what you want is a balanced approach. Do we sometimes get it wrong and end up with too much emphasis on one side or too much emphasis on the other? For sure. But most math teachers that I know try and use a balanced approach when they do this. 
this um, inquiry-based math on the one hand, they're not neglecting the basics. There's no one out there who doesn't want kids to um, know how to do simple arithmetic. Sometimes we get the balance wrong, but that's the that's the the, the main thing we need to be going for is teaching both those kinds of skills. We're here live with Joel Westheimer, a professor of education at the University of Ottawa, and our question on cross-country checkup today, why are our kids struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? Our phone number is 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us, 226-758-8924. And Joel, like I'm thinking way, way, way back, and uh, people were debating the new math, whatever that was, uh, as they look at the curriculum. I, I assume school School curriculums are changing all the time. And do you think the state of math education is better now than it used to be? I do, Ian. Um, and of course, the curriculum changes all the time, as it should. That doesn't mean that um, there are teachers out there who don't think kids should be able to add numbers and get the right answer. Um, but it does mean that uh, we're now thinking about um, broader kinds of learning that aren't weren't always represented in the in the older curriculum and those kinds of skills for example critical analysis of things, um, being able to understand uh, why the formulas work the way they do, being able to, uh, let's let's think about how that applies in real life, right? Let's just take climate change for an example. Mm -hmm. If we really want people to be able to be active participants in a democratic society, we need a kind of math literacy that um, basic skills just doesn't give everyone. And so we want the basic skills for sure, but we also want people to be able to understand how those skills are used, what kind of purposes they serve in the broader society, and how they can understand social problems and help to try and solve those problems in it, in addition to getting the right change at a supermarket. And perhaps unlike climate change, your lesson on the state of math education in Canada is don't panic, right? Don't panic. Right. That's right. I want to say it again. The sky isn't <laughs> falling. Canada is doing very, very, very well. And that's in the basic skills, right? We're also doing quite well in things like critical thinking um, and, uh, and outside of the box mm -hmm. thinking. And that's really good news for all of us. Really nice talking to you, Joel. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me. Joel Westheimer, professor of education at the University of Ottawa and education columnist for CBC Radio's Ottawa Morning Show, and we've reached him in Ottawa. Still about a half an hour to talk about our main topic, why are kids struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? Also, let me take a look at what's coming in on social media here. Greg Thompson via text says, we know kids struggle with math. I teach at high school in New Brunswick and the no-fail policy at elementary and middle schools does not allow for kids to be at the grade level for high school. Many grade nine students are years behind in development. Carrie A via Twitter slash X says, I love math. I was an honors student in math for most of school. Algebra and quadratic equations felt like code breaking. But in the 23 years since high school, I've never used anything past what we learned in sixth grade. I think it needs to be saved for college fields where it's relevant. Some more social media comments uh, coming up in just a sec. But I want to say goodbye to our viewers on CBC News Network. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. 
Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup live on CBC Radio. Our Ask Me Anything is going to begin in 30 minutes' time. Are you seeing cases of COVID, RSV, and flu among your friends and family? The trifecta of respiratory illnesses are spreading right before the holiday season. That is the focus of our Ask Me Anything. You can start calling now with questions for a pediatric infectious disease specialist who will be with us for the half hour. Call us at 1-888-416-8333. You can text us to 226 Both of those numbers do double duty because for the next 30 minutes, you can use it to continue talking about our main topic on the program. Why are our kids struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? I'm Ian Hanamansing and we're live in CBC Vancouver Studio 10. Uh, Let me go back to some of the social media comments and online comments. Lobsang Tenzin via email says, I didn't enjoy math until I started learning physics and how the formulas related to the real world. We teach math too slowly. We need to get the applications of formulas much earlier. And Masa Stojanovic via Aircheck from Toronto says, I think people underestimate how smart and capable their children are. I think that leading up to high school, not enough is covered out of fear that students won't perform well. And then it skyrockets when they hit high school. If you as a parent or a teacher don't believe a child can learn a certain mathematical concept, you're setting them up for failure. All right, let's go to the phone lines once again. Stephanie Esri is in Toronto. Hi, Stephanie. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. I see you're in grade 10. How's it going? It's going. I'm lucky I don't have math this semester. <laughs> <laughs> and and what about math? Uh, what how do you how, how has that gone for you in school so far? I mean, I historically haven't been the best math student, but I got an incredible grade 9 math grade at least for me personally I got an 88. And I think part of the reason is because the elementary curriculum, it isn't as standardized as a high school curriculum. Mm-hmm. Elementary, you know, different teachers teach it the same way, and there's more wiggle room in the ways you can teach it. But in high school, since there's an exam and grade 9 EQAO, they have to teach it a certain way. So every student, no matter what class, no matter what teacher, should be taught the same basic things, and uh, usually is. So you, so you had a huge turnaround between grade eight and grade nine in math, right? So I, I yes. see, the, I mean, why don't I, instead of reading what I see in the notes in front of me, tell me like how you did in grade eight and then you just mentioned uh, a really good mark in grade nine. I, I actually got a 72 in grade eight math. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what did you say, an 88 in grade nine? Yeah. Yeah. And so, how, I mean, I would be thrilled if that had happened to me. How did you feel about yourself? I, I I was very happy. I I don't think it was because of my teacher in grade eight. They she was an excellent teacher. Mm-hmm. I think it's just because you know in grade nine it, it's also like less of a big jump from grade eight to grade nine math. It's stuff you know that has been covered already, but it's also very standardized. You sound remarkably poised for somebody who's 15 years old, so congratulations on that. You're obviously a great speaker, and now it turns out you're pretty good at math as well. And I should point out that your your parents uh, not only uh, have consented to you talking to us live on the air, but I see in a note here, your parents told you to call. Why did they want you to call? Well, um, I've actually been on this program a couple times before, and ah. I really enjoy uh, speaking. And oh, my nice. father uh, texted me. He's like, you know... You you like you like math. 
tell them your experience. Yeah. Um, So why don't we finish with this, Stephanie? For somebody who's listening who maybe is a little younger than you and they're struggling with math, they don't like math, they don't think they're good at math, uh, do you have any um, suggestions for them? Well, I mean, even if you don't like math and don't think you'll use it, it's still important because it challenges your brain. It encourages you to problem solve, look at things from all different angles, even if you aren't going to use it later in life. And it gets better. Different math teachers have different ways of teaching things. And so you don't have to take math, it sounds like, in grade 10, but it's, I, I'm sure you'll have to take it uh, in high school ahead. How do you feel about that well, prospect? I, I have to take it next semester, but mm-hmm. right now I'm doing science and physics, which is pretty mathy. <laughs> We're doing trigonometry. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, but I think, you know, I, want, I hope to become a teacher. So in grade 11, even if it's not my first choice, even if I'd rather take social sciences, I am still going to take a math credit. Well, good luck. I, I, you know, if you want to be a teacher, that's a great thing. And I, I hope you succeed at that. But I honestly think, Stephanie, you may end up being a broadcaster. You're really good at explaining uh, your point of view. And you've already been on the show before, as you mentioned. And uh, yeah, think about this, uh, this profession as well. I will consider it. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, Stephanie, thank you very much. You're listening to Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hannah Mansing, and our question, why are our kids struggling in math? Stephanie's not struggling, clearly. Is it time to rethink how we teach it? Uh, our next caller, I'm not going to use uh, her last name uh, for privacy reasons, uh, but I am uh, able to use uh, this name, Alyssa. How are you? Hi, I'm well. How are you? Good, good. Uh, what, uh, what has your sort of uh, history been in terms of, of math? Well, um, I unfortunately didn't get to finish high school because mm-hmm. of um, some serious mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always struggled in math in high school, especially due to my learning disability and my anxiety. But then um, when I got older and my mental health struggles weren't as um, prominent in my life, Mm-hmm. I was able to go back. Sorry if you can hear my cat. Um, and I went from getting a 51 in math to a 91 in wow. uh, function. So, yeah, it turns out I'm actually pretty good at math. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And so, I mean, you, you, you've disclosed that you had mental health issues and that uh, those were, um, you know, you, you weren't struggling in the same way with those when you went back as a mature student. Was that the, the key difference in how well you did with math later on, or were there other things that changed as well? Um, I definitely think that there are other factors that played a role. For example, mm-hmm. when I was in high school, I wasn't really able to relate math to anything I was passionate about. And my teachers really weren't helping me with that. It mm-hmm. just wasn't relatable, so I wasn't interested. And so um, when I got into an adult learning center, my teacher actually helped me relate uh, stuff like calculating wavelengths to biology and physics, which I did have an interest in. And I think um, at the beginning of the program, a young man who had been interviewed had said that he wished his teachers made math more relatable for him. And I really think that that's the key in the age of technology, in the age of um, class media, where you get 30-second clips or a single post and then kids move on and they scroll past. They really need their education to be relatable as well. You said you got a 91, Alyssa, in math when you, when you most recently took it? Yes. Wow. Yes. So congratulations. And, and how, how did, did that change the way you felt either? I mean, I think it probably changed the way you felt about your ability to do math, but maybe it also changed the way you just felt about yourself. 
It did. It did. It really did help my confidence. Um, growing up, I really didn't feel like I was smart because of, of my anxiety and the barriers that that created between me and learning. Um, but now that I'm older, it really does help your confidence to feel like you can solve a difficult question or that um, you can be tried by a formula and, and come through with an answer. It makes you feel like you can apply that to the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and do you think it, it's going to open the door for you t- uh, to work that maybe five years ago you would have thought you wouldn't have a shot at? Oh, absolutely. I've started considering um, physics and maybe being a math teacher. I've started considering um, harder biology programs. So, yeah, I definitely think um, it helped that too. That is fantastic, Alyssa. Thank you very much for calling us. No problem. Thank you for having me. All right, from Toronto to Duncan, British Columbia now, and Doug Andrusik is uh, calling us. Hi, Doug. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. What uh, What do you want to tell us about uh, the state of math, either in your life or what you've seen in Canada? Sure. Um, so I don't have any kids. I can't comment on that, but mm-hmm. certainly I can uh, tell a story about my experience, mm-hmm. uh, which which goes back 40 years when I was in high school. Um, I entered uh, the advanced stream of mathematics in Ontario, and about halfway through that first semester in my math class, I was essentially told I should probably not continue with the advanced stream, which I didn't. Um, Hmm. I think that the main reason for that was a clash between myself and and the teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went on and and did the, the the moderate stream. I completed both business and technical mathematics and scored in the nineties in both of those, uh, and figured that that was it for me for mathematics. Um, about 30 years later, I found myself back at graduate school, uh, having entered a master's of science and then a doctorate in epidemiology and biostatistics. Um, and from that, I discovered that, yeah, there's no problem with me in mathematics, that mm-hmm. uh, that personality clash between me and that instructor, the, 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 the lack of ability to relate, I suppose, for both of us in reflection, um, meant that I I lost 30 years of doing something with a quantitative career, which uh, I think would have been quite exciting. Yeah. I, you know, I, I appreciate the way you're telling the story too, your candor for sure, but also the fact that, okay, so there's this teacher with whom you had this clash, but it, you know, you may have contributed to whatever led to your you know, clash, I guess. So that that's an interesting thing to think about. As, as you look back, besides lamenting to the extent that you do, um, the lost opportunities for all those years, uh, for people who are listening, like any advice on, 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 you know, as I say, as you look back on how you might have been able to manage it, let, let's say that year was a, was a write-off in terms of math. Is there something you could have done the next year? Um, I, 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 seeing as it was the, uh, it, it the the gentleman who I was being taught by was the department head, so mm-hmm. I, I would have encountered him again, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but there there is a group of people I don't think have have been noted uh, so far in this discussion, and I think that's the policymakers, both at the ministry level that and the politicians who make decisions about. 
um, class size and composition and, and that sort of uh, those sorts of variables. Mm-hmm. Um, a little more time to relate to each other means you need less kids in the class. Mm-hmm. And mathematics is one of those areas that I think having uh, a lower student-teacher ratio is going to benefit everybody. Um, yeah. And Class, Alyssa, yeah, go ahead. Alyssa's comments earlier on, or just prior to me, that that making it it takes time to make it relatable because you need to learn as an instructor who that child is, what what drives their interests, and how you can then make that quantitative so that the the kid um, sees how this this world uh, relates to them. Class size matters. You know, we hear people complaining about classes being too big over and over and over again. But uh, Doug, you you bring up a really good point about uh, one micro example uh, of uh, students being able to relate to what their teachers are doing and the advantage of having smaller classes. So thank you for doing that. And though it took maybe 20 years, uh, I'm glad you, you finally found your calling and it involved math, even though back in grade nine, someone dismissed your ability to do it. Thank you, Ian. All right. Uh, why are our kids struggling in math? Is it time to rethink how we teach it? That is our topic for the next 15 minutes on Cross Country Checkup, one 416 8333 And then we will switch over to our Ask Me Anything. We have an infectious disease expert, a pediatric infectious disease expert who is standing by and she's going to be here to answer your questions about RSV, flu, COVID, and kids. And, uh, you know, questions like what you should be looking out for about testing and about vaccines, uh, whatever questions you have, she'll be willing to answer them on that topic. All right. Mary Skinnell is in Little Current, Ontario, a retired math teacher for students with learning disabilities. Hi, Mary. Hello, Ian. How are you? Good. Where is Little Current? It's on Manitoulin Island. It's it's, uh, northwest of Sudbury, Ontario. Okay. And uh, so you have taught both in Canada and the yeah, United most, States? Most of my career was in the United States, in Ohio, mm-hmm. and I taught grades 7 to 12. And um, that was from like the 90s to 2006. Okay. And what we, that's when all the testing and assessments started coming forward. And one of the things that we found with our students is the language component of mathematics is so often forgotten the teachers tend to use all the mathematical terms without even taking a step back to if the students understand what that term is. Because mathematics is a universal language. It has its own language. And when we forget to teach the language component, the students are listening to the explanations, but they're not understanding the language. So give me an example of that, Mary. Well, just all your different terms mm-hmm. that you use when, when, when unpacking a math problem. Um, just all the definitions, especially in geometry, you know, with all the different terms in geometry. Mm-hmm. And if you really, you have to go through it, sort it through. And when you go to sort your lesson, you look at the vocabulary that is precise for mathematics. Mm-hmm. Minus, take away, like all the ways we say to divide. But then you look at how it's in a problem. And so the students, when they read the problem, they unpack the mathematic language, 
and then they know what the problem is asking. And we saw test scores increase significantly by so, using that approach. So we do know overall from the PISA stats that test scores in Canada are declining. We know that Canada also is actually not doing badly relative mm-hmm. to other places. We heard from Professor Westheimer from the University of Ottawa, an education professor who says the sky is not falling. But we've also heard from others, teachers and uh, and students or parents, I guess, who, who worry about the state of math education. Uh, Mary, you would have retired... Um, at a time when these these scores were going down, what do you think right. of, I, uh, of the numbers? Well, I think right now, I think as, as students are getting confused with all the different, you know, sometimes they go in and they're given a problem and then they sit with a group and they have to talk about it and try to unpack it together. I think what we need to do is really work on with our students as a group, having the teacher really demonstrate unpacking of the problem. Mm -hmm. But again, using more of the language-based that's the problem in mathematics. Because when students are struggling with language of math, they're going to struggle in math because Mm -hmm. they don't have an understanding of it. I so often had students say, mathematics is fun when you know what you're doing. (laughs) Mary, thank you very much <laughs> and for calling. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. Yeah, well, that that is interesting, and some good lessons in there. So, Mary, thank you very much for calling. Okay, thank you, Ian. Our number here on Cross Country Checkup is one eight 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 four one six eight three three three. You can also go to cbc.ca/slash/aircheck. Why are our kids struggling in math, and how should we be teaching it in school? Sherry Ostapiak is in London, Ontario. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Ian. So you have a niece in, in grade seven, I see in the notes here, struggling in math. Uh, so what, uh, wh- how's your family responding to that? Well, we've tried tutors in the past, um, which has helped for sure. I, I decided to take it on myself. And what we find, a lot of what your previous scholars have already said resonates a lot. There's a lack of understanding of the basics. So mm-hmm. taking it back to just learning multiplication tables, how to do long multiplication, long division, um, but, you know, not knowing what the new math uh, curriculum looks like or how things, certain concepts might be taught differently than how I learned when I was in school mm-hmm. makes it a little difficult. Um, and there's really no resources for parents f- from the teachers in terms of what the lesson was teaching, like what principles. Um, so it can be really challenging to help to support and to, you know, self-tutor children through school and, and help them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so how's it been going? It, it's going good. I think we are focusing a lot more on the basics and, and maybe not necessarily on, on what that particular worksheet for the week was and what mm-hmm. the test might be on. Um, but, you know, it is, it, it's going, it's going okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you're good at math, but, but you're not, I guess you're not a teacher, right? So, uh, <laughs> no, yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm a nurse myself. So yeah. I, I do use a lot of math in my, in my day-to-day work, at least when I was at the bedside, I used to use it a lot more, but, mm-hmm. um, and I did take some in, in high school and university, of course, and stats and so, you know, I've got a good understanding. It's just, might not have done geometry in a long time. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so why do you think 
your niece struggles in math? And because and, it's a, like a question I asked a university student who called maybe half an hour ago, and I just think, you know, brains are different. Uh, some people work harder than other people. Some people have self-esteem issues. Do you have any sense of, like, what would your guess be in terms of why she in grade seven is struggling in math? I think it's kind of multifaceted, to be honest. I yeah. think there's definitely a lack of confidence in her own skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she is working through a word problem, just glossing over things and making assumptions, not really thinking through it because she feels that she's not going to be able to do it. Um, and then just learning to break things down to smaller pieces like that. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting off of your No, no. So. No, no, the, yeah, no, no. I think I think it is interesting, right? Because part of this is, like, because I, I keep thinking back to just like somebody when I asked someone else this question, they pointed out it's kind of like piano, right? That there's a there's a continuum, and virtually yeah. everybody can learn the basics of like uh, yeah. you know yeah. C major scale. Uh, but then as yeah. you add more and more complexity, uh, it doesn't matter what attitude people have and how good their teachers are and how motivated they are. Not everyone yeah. is going to be a concert pianist. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I, I, I used to teach piano myself. So <laughs> I think, you know, math is so important. And I think I did have a bit more of an affinity for it growing up, um, only because I was really good at patterns and sequencing and mm-hmm. understanding that. And that's, I think, what, what she lacks a lot of. She doesn't she doesn't pick out those patterns. Mm-hmm. She doesn't see the sequencing. Um, and I think a lot of that goes back to not having a good understanding of the basics as well. But she's lucky to have you as an aunt, and I'm sure it's great to have a tutor in the family who can help her work on that stuff. And we certainly appreciate, yeah, we appreciate you calling in. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, our next caller is Jeff Budden in Calgary. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Ian. Um, I, I see you. You told our, our producers that that parents need to take more responsibility for their kids' math education. Uh, explain that for us. So our teachers do a great job, mm-hmm. no doubt. They have 30 or 40 kids to look out for. And to be a little bit selfish, I've got three, my three <laughs> kids. And yeah. I really believe that it's our job as parents to pick up the ball that our teachers have done a great job with doing, no doubt, mm-hmm. and run with it. And I think too many parents today, I, 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 I can speak for myself, not other parents, obviously, but too many too many times we hear people saying our teachers aren't doing enough for our kids when I really believe it has to happen at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. And we work together with our teachers and our kids do well. And if we expect our teachers to just turn our kids into rocket scientists and physicians, then that's not going to happen. Um, our job in society and, and Western society has done so well because our parents and their parents before them their goal was to make their kids better. And I think that as parents, my goal, how do I make my kids better than me? And that's helping them with their math. Well, that sound you hear in the background, Jeff, is teachers across the country who are cheering on what you're saying, because I'm sure it is important to have uh, parents take on uh, a little bit more of that responsibility. Um, now, you quite uh, candidly disclosed to our producers uh, <laughs> a, a mark you got in math back when you were in school in the 90s. I'll let you uh, disclose that number to our audience. So back in grade 11, I got a 49 in a class. Oh, 49. Jeff, was, what was yeah, going so on? The, the teacher was very clear to me. He said, I should pass you but you deserve an 80. You're smart enough to get an 85 mm-hmm. and I'm going to fail you in this class because you <laughs> didn't work to your ability. 
I don't know that that happens too much anymore, Ian. I think there's a whole lot of, well, let's just pass this kid and move it on to the next. Again, I'm not sliding our teachers at all, but we far too often hear that every kid always passes, right? The whole everybody gets a ribbon concept of, you know, the last X numbers of years. The best thing that happened to me in high school was when that teacher failed me. And I didn't have to retake the class. I went up to him and begged to him for the mark. And he said, Jeff, you know what we'll do? You have, you have bio, grade 12 biology next semester. You get an 85. I'll give you the credit and you can take the next class. Wow. I, you know, the th- yeah. like you, you have to have a deft touch as a teacher to know how to handle that, right? Because it could go the other way and the student could walk away either crushed or angry and never try to, uh, to fix things. But it sounds like, Jeff, it worked. That 49% worked perfectly for you. Well, Bert Wilson back in the early 90s was easily the teacher that turned it. And every teacher wants to think and can do that mm-hmm. and believe that. And sometimes it takes failing. Some, sometimes it takes to let somebody fall before they can stand up for themselves. Yeah. It, it, this reminds me, and I won't bore the audience with going deeply into it, but a similar scene in that comedy classic Fast Times at Ridgemont High when the teacher decided, <laughs> yeah, decided to teach yeah, Spicoli, uh, you know, what he needed to know to pass. Um, and so the math that you eventually learned in high school, what kind of impact did it have on the rest of your life? Uh, well, I mean, again, back to the point that our job is to make our kids better than we were. I can talk trigonometry and calculus in the unit circle to my kids at the dinner table. Nice. Without what happened back then, that doesn't happen now. Regardless of my job, I do software now. Mm-hmm. So obviously, there's a lot of math and lots of algorithms. But that's not really the point in, 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 in society, I think. I think, again, the point is, can we make our kids smarter than we were? And I am able to, have to, to, to do that to my teenagers. I believe that. Jeff, thank you very much for calling. Thank you. A reminder that in about five minutes' time, we go to our AMA, and it's about kids and COVID and RSV and flu, a pediatric infectious disease. Doctor is going to be here to answer your questions. And given how much respiratory illness is circulating in Canada right now, I bet you there are lots of questions. one 416 if you would like to get a call in to the doctor on that issue. I'll take one more call on our show topic, though, before then. And before I take that call, let me quickly look at some of the online reaction to our question. Linda Gardner via Aircheck from Edmonton says, start with a ban on the phrase math is hard. No one should ever say that out loud. Math can be interesting and fun. Math can make a water fountain dance to music. Math is all around us every day. Andrew McTaggart via text from Vancouver says, one of the worst things about math for me was the shame I felt when getting a test back. Now as a dad, Teaching it, I'm aware the classroom shame and discouraging teaching methods are alive and well. I like math now, but it's been a lifetime of coming to terms with the confidence required to be able to do it. And Lisa Lunny Borden via X Twitter, only in Canada do we finish in the top 10 globally and call ourselves a failure. If you want to know why there's a decline in PISA, look at the government cuts in education and erosion of professional development for teachers, increased childhood poverty, increased social issues, and a pandemic. All right, last call on our main question today. Gail Winterton is in Vancouver. Hi, Gail. Hi, Ian. Uh, And and tell me about uh, your relationship with math. Well... It's a little bit complicated, so I'm not going to go into a really lengthy explanation. Okay. And I 
didn't discover I had it until I was an adult. But I have dyslexia, mm-hmm. and I see numbers in reverse or a different order. Mm-hmm. And so I continuously had to check and recheck my work. And um, a friend recognized it when we were working together on some numbers. And she said, well, what are you doing? Wow. And made me realize. And as an adult, I got the diagnosis. And so now I know I can't really work on computers or learn to code or wasn't good at typing speed or anything because I had to recheck and recheck everything. Mm-hmm. So if a child's parent can, if they see any issues with questioning numbers and wanting to redo things over and double checking, maybe they should have their child checked because there's so much that they can do. Mm-hmm. if they recognize it early and they won't have to struggle like I did. Yeah, you know what? That is a really good uh, point. And, uh, and Gail, thank you very much for calling in and sharing that. All right, you're welcome. Uh, you know what? I can squeeze in one more call before we go to the AMA. Dick Peacock is in Ottawa. Hi, Dick. Hi, Ian. How are you? Good. I see you have an impressive uh, array of credentials here, a degree in math, PhD in computer science and AI. So what's your view on our uh, question today, how we're teaching math to kids and why uh, Canadian students seem to be, uh, their, their basic math skills seem to be declining? Well, I think that the, uh, you've had some really great call-ins. Two points I'd strongly emphasize. Mm-hmm. We don't teach early enough. Um, it's, it, it should start in kindergarten and grades one to four. Um, right into the math, to, and that would help dispel the fear as well. Mm-hmm. So um, second point was um, somebody phoned in about memorizing times tables instead of uh, being told how to understand them first and then memorizing. I remember trying to teach, help a teacher uh, understand the concepts that she was being told to teach. This was actually in England, mm-hmm. and I couldn't understand the concepts that she was doing, despite the fact I was actually doing a math degree at the time. Mm. So I think going in and uh, memorizing the tables and then um, using them. We had in grades one to four, now this was you know, many decades ago, we would have loads of examples of counting money and change. This is to make the math relatable. We didn't put it up as a problem, and people didn't say, oh, you'll never use this stuff. We did so many examples of counting money and change, um, working out areas of flooring. If you're going to put down some tiles, mm-hmm. how many do you need in this room, and so on. Scoring in games, tournaments, um, yep. you know, three kids are playing cards, and they score this, this, and this, who wins, and so forth. Um, oh, loans, interest on loans. Yeah. You only that's... need percentages, and that makes the point that it's all relatable. Yep. And then people stop saying, oh, I don't need this. And they actually enjoy it. We used yep. to do mental arithmetic as well, and that was fun. All four of those examples are are so perfect, right? Because I, as you said, each one of them, I, I absolutely could see not only now, but as a student, how I'd see how uh, relevant it is. And uh, look at you, a PhD in computer science and AI, the, you know, the clear line from math as a kid to math as an adult. Dick, thank you very much for calling in. Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks very much for the show, Ian. You're welcome. It's time for Ask Me Anything, Kids, COVID, RSV, and Flu Edition.
you could hear the coughs, you could hear the sneezes, you can hear what both of my kids have pretty much throughout most of the classroom. We're bracing for another uh, winter like last winter where a number of kids needed to be hospitalized with RSV. We're certainly hoping not to see that again this year, but that's what we're preparing for. This is sort of going to be the new norm going forward, that we're going to have this level of infection. The so-called triple-demic is back. The flu season has officially begun, according to the Public Health Agency of Canada, and COVID and RSV are circulating right now. The worst cases, of course, ending up in emergency rooms. Departments in Ontario, Quebec and Alberta are reporting long wait times. With holiday gatherings right around the corner, in fact, for many of us, some have already begun. We're looking for your questions on kids, COVID, RSV, and the flu. Dr. Anna Banerjee is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Medicine and the Dalla School of Public Health. She also sees patients at St. Joseph's Hospital in Toronto. You can ask her anything on this topic. Call us at 1-888-416-8333 or you can text a question to 226-758-8924. Dr. Banerjee, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This uh, respiratory illness season has been described by some doctors as the new normal. How, how does this so-called triple-demic compare to, to what you saw in your practice and, and uh, you know, talking to other doctors, what we saw this time last year? Oh, last year, I don't think it was comparable. Last year, we had babies and children flying all over the province, and I think it was the worst uh, respiratory season, I think, in in history. Now it's it's bad, it's increasing, but we're a little bit more prepared. So I'm hope, hopeful that it won't be as bad as last year. And, and what are you seeing right now uh, in terms of when you see patients when you go to the hospital? We're seeing all of them, uh, RSV, influenza and COVID. We're here live with Dr. Anna Banerjee, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the Dalla School of Public Health. And uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to open up the phone lines. You can ask her anything about kids, COVID, flu, RSV. Our number is one 416 So, Dr. Banerjee, if, if, if someone who's listening has a kid who is sick with some sort of respiratory illness, they, they don't know exactly what they have, um, how should the parents approach holiday gatherings? So if the child is sick right now before the holiday gatherings, I would just say, keep that kid home. You know, you don't want other people to get what that child has. Um, you know, it's if closer to the holidays. Again, if a child is really sick, they should be kept at home because there might be an elderly grandparent there or a, a newborn baby, et cetera, and that child could spread that the viruses right now. So we don't know what it's going to be like in two weeks, what the hospital situation is like, but I think it's better to keep someone sick home. You know, before COVID, uh, we were dealing with flu season and uh, and RSV to an extent. And uh, I don't know. I don't know that if, if people were as uh, vigilant about watching for those things and acting based on it. And I'll bet you their parents who now, if their kid comes down with something, might think, well, gee, you know, is it COVID? And if it isn't COVID, we're okay. How, how, how significant is it uh, for your, you know, to, to change your, the way you deal with your kid and, and social gatherings uh, if it's COVID as opposed to RSV or, uh, or the influenza? 
So, so depending on the age group, all of them can cause significant health issues. Uh, so RSV tends to be for the younger kids, uh, influenza and COVID. Again, it tends to, to target the older people. But nowadays, when a child comes in with a respiratory virus and a fever, often they're not being tested. So it doesn't really matter if it's COVID versus RSV. Um, in some ways, no, because we should be doing public health measures for all of it. Um, and we know that some of the testing is not that accurate. So I think that you just assume the worst case scenario that that child has something infectious, you know, especially if they have a fever, and you don't want that child to spread it among other people. You can say, well, it's going around the schools, and that's true. But there are you know, it depends on where you're going. There may be other children or family members or um, co-workers, et cetera, like friends of family that are vulnerable. So I would try uh, now if a child is sick, especially with the fever, just to keep them home. And it doesn't really matter if it's influenza, RSV, or COVID. Yeah. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. We're live in Vancouver and Dr. Anna, Anna Banerjee is live in our studio in Toronto and she's here to answer your questions about kids, COVID, flu and RSV and our number is 1-888-416-8333. Dr. Banerjee, uh, l- let's talk about vaccines for a moment. I think some people have kind of lost track of what vaccines they should be giving their kids and what those vaccines are good for. What's the state of vaccinations right now when we look at these three things, flu, RSV, and COVID? So for COVID, they have the bivalent vaccine, which is uh, the original strain plus the Omicron and XBII. It's hard to keep uh, track Mm -hmm. of all the alphabets, but the, the bivalent strain is really what what the kids should have, because uh, the older vaccine uh, is matched to the original strain and things have changed. So I really would recommend that if you haven't been vaccinated and you want to get together with a bunch of people to get the COVID vaccine, the bivalent, the newer strain that's been out since about October. Um, As far as um, influenza, influenza vaccine, you can give it to kids uh, six months and above, just like the the COVID vaccine. Um, So I recommend that again, if you don't want your kid to have a viral respiratory illness in the middle of the holiday season, then it's a good time to get them vaccinated now if they're not. Now, RSV, there is no vaccine for young children. The recently licensed vaccine is for uh, older people um, and mainly people in um, retirement homes, senior homes, etc. Because RSV to you and I, uh, to most of us, would just be a cold. You know, we just, it's not a big deal for most people mm-hmm. and um, majority of people like about 50% of the population will get RSV in a typical year. But, uh, but uh, there is a new um, antibody that uh, has been licensed recently. Unfortunately, we couldn't get any of it in Canada and that's for the original criteria were, were for premature babies and those with uh, significant heart or lung disease. Uh, but the newer version of that, that antibody is simpler to give. It's one dose versus five, and it should be cheaper. And I expect that that will be coming out uh, for people next year, for children next year, babies. But I don't know what the criteria is going to be. But I've been lobbying for a long time to get that also to Indigenous communities in flying flying Mm -hmm. communities. 
I just want to let our listeners know that uh, this is a great opportunity to ask uh, Dr. Banerjee questions about uh, infectious diseases, about respiratory illnesses. Uh, at this time, she's a pediatric infectious disease specialist and sees patients in Toronto. Our number is one 416 And uh, you addressed some of what our uh, first caller wants to ask about, but let's go to that call. And uh, a little bit of overlap is not necessarily a bad thing. Donald Protz is in Thunder Bay. Hi, Donald. Hi, Ian. Um, hi, doctor. Hi. Um, um, my question is about a problem my wife and I are having with uh, getting an RSV vaccination. Uh, it was approved in Ontario for use uh, in August, and uh, the Thunder Bay District Health Unit told me last week that it's still not available for free um, until January sometime. Uh, otherwise, if I wanted it now, it would cost us about $290 each. Uh, We've got all our vaccinations for everything, Uh, shingles, uh, pneumonia, virus, uh, um, you know, seven uh, 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 COVID uh, shots, uh, our our high-dose flu, and so on. But we'd like to get that one. Uh, But but, uh, we find that the government, I mean, you said you were lobbying a lot, but we find that the government is pretty slow in uh, coming across with, with the funding, according to the Thunder Bay Health Unit, they're a little slow in coming across with the funding for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, older right. adults. Uh, and, 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 and Donald, do you have a question for Dr. Banerjee? Uh, the question is, um, uh, how much lobbying do you need to do, or are, are you finding that there's a problem with, with getting the, the governments to, to respond, uh, you know, for the sake okay. of our health? Yeah. All right. So, Dr. Banerjee, I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable situation talking about government policy, but uh, is is there? Yeah, uh, what, yeah. You can weigh in. So, um, so the RSV vaccine is really for um, people who are compromised and adults right now, like mainly seniors, because. If I don't know what your how old you are, what kind of underlying health conditions are, but for most people, it's just a cold. It's it's a viral illness. It's a common respiratory virus. So they're trying to target the people that are at higher risk. Now, as far as government and policy, I'm actually very um, familiar with that because we have a petition on change.org called Vera Medicine, where we've been trying to get the RSV antibody to the Inuit babies that have the highest rate of RSV in the world. Um, and we have a quarter of a million signatures, and yet it hasn't happened. And I'm hoping that with a new antibody, that um, that they'll start giving that new antibody to the to the indigenous babies in the remote flying communities. But you know, it's it's not just lobbying; it's also the governments uh, looking at the data and trying to decide where they're going to put the money. If for most people RSV is a mild condition, they may decide not to, but mm-hmm. not to publicly fund it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate right now. It's about $290 a dose. Dr. Anna Banerjee is an infectious disease specialist, and she's in our Toronto studio, and she's here to answer your questions about COVID, RSV, influenza, uh, 1-888-416-8333, with a particular emphasis, I should point out, though not exclusively, um, in terms of dealing with uh, children. We do know, we've seen the alerts from the two children's hospitals in Montreal and some other hospitals across the country of how hard it is hitting kids, though Dr. Banerjee points out, not as hard as it was a year ago when... Uh, uh, kids were being flown to other regions in order to get care. Let's go to Chris Lozon, who's in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. Hi, Chris. Hi. 
Uh, what's your question for Dr. Banerjee? Well, I, I'm, I work at, the, at a ski school, an international ski school, and, and we see people from, well, all over the world because it's an international ski school. Uh, and I, I get the flu like three, four times a, a season. And I, I'm assuming it's just because it's different variants. Uh, you know, coming from, you know, everywhere from Mexico to Great Britain. So I think I'm just seeing a bunch of different variants. Am I right in believing that? So you're saying, Chris, you get the flu? I do. And I did a survey about five years ago, and I asked the adult ski school, Mm -hmm. and I I asked the children's ski school, you know, how often do you get the flu? For the adults, it was, you know, they didn't say at all there was no significant number but the the worst case that i found in the kids ski school was one young lady and she said that she gets the flu when she arrives in the fall and it doesn't go away until may i myself have had the flu up to five times in a season and i just assume that it's because i'm seeing variants from everywhere around the world and then the other reason I think it's a pretty serious contagion at this, uh, at, at this, in this occupation, it, more so even than regular school, is because I take uh, children from the outside where it's quite cold, and I bring them inside. Um, and, and I think that that's where the flu moves. It just jumps from one person to another right there. Uh, All right, and, and Chris. I'm thinking about getting an air filter. I've asked yeah. for an air filter, and I'm wondering if the doctor down there knows yep. about these air filters. Yeah, I, I'm going to bring uh, Dr. Banerjee into this in just a moment. But Chris, one question for you before I do that. Do you get the flu shot? Uh, I got the COVID shot. I, I don't usually get the flu shot, no. Okay, interesting. All right, uh, you can stay on the line in case uh, Dr. Banerjee has any follow-ups. Uh, but Dr. Banerjee, lots there. Uh, jump in. So um, when he says the flu uh, three to four times a year, it's not necessarily what we we call the flu. Flu is influenza. It's a very specific virus. So probably what he's getting is flu-like illness mm-hmm. several times a year. And part of the risk for him is just, again, being exposed to a number of people, not you know one group, but there's a whole bunch of people coming through. So the more people you're exposed to, the more likelihood there could be of, of being exposed. But it's not specifically influenza unless you're tested. And that would be very unusual for one person to get influenza several times a year. Yeah, and doc- uh, uh, sorry, go ahead, Dr. Banerjee. Yeah, and so and the other person who has uh, flu-like illness from fall to May, I would suggest that that's probably not influenza either. That's probably maybe bronchitis or something else or allergies because viral illness, you know, maybe not COVID, but most viral illness lasts uh, a week. And so if someone has symptoms that persist, there's probably another cause. Air filters, I think that's a good idea if you can get a air circulation uh, air filters to, uh, again, reduce the exposure to these viruses. Um, now, so let me, uh, Dr. Banerjee, because we have lots of calls I want to get to, but let me ask you a few quick follow-ups uh, on, on Chris's case. One is, he, he said something about kids going from outside in the cold to inside in the 
warm and that that might contribute to uh, increased infections. What's your view on that? I think it's more that when you're outside, uh, the viruses are spread out. But when you're indoors, you have a bunch of a bunch a whole bunch of people from all over the world with their runny noses in a closed space. And so that's what increases your risk. Yeah. And to your point earlier about Chris saying at one point he had five flus in the in the winter and that you were saying that's unlikely. It probably wasn't influenza. Um, I learned the hard way what the difference is between a cold, even a bad cold, and influenza. Learned it the hard way by when I had influenza. It was night and day. So uh, Dr. Banerjee, kind of give us a, a quick uh, you know, sort of explanation of uh, when you have influenza, how you feel. So influenza is a, a viral illness. It's a common viral illness. Um, And uh, usually when you get it, you can have high fevers, you can have body aches, um, and you feel terrible. It's more likely, um, you know, versus some of the other respiratory viruses, you can get pneumonias and earaches, but you feel really, really awful. And versus like, for example, an RSV in an adult, it's a cold. A cold is typically a runny nose, maybe sore throat, uh, cough, but influenza, you just feel really awful with fevers, chills, body aches. Yeah, one thing I learned is you can go, you can work out, although you shouldn't do it in a gym with other people, but you can work out if you have a cold. In my experience, you cannot work out if you have no. the flu. Well, you just feel absolutely slammed. So Chris asked about uh, an air filter inside the resort. You said that was a good idea, but what about the flu shot? Absolutely. I mean, if, if he's being exposed to all these other kids, and then um, for sure a flu shot would really prevent... Influenza. One of the big errors that people make, they think that if you get an influenza vaccine and then you get a cold or a viral illness, the influenza vaccine didn't work. Influenza vaccine only to, uh, works against influenza. So it would stop influenza, but, you know, the other things like air filters, washing our hands, cough etiquette, all that might help reduce it uh, for him as well. Or, or at least as I understand it, and Dr. Banerjee, correct me because you're the expert, but the flu vaccine will protect you against the strains of the flu that are contained in the vaccine, but I think also reduce the severity if it's a different strain of the flu. Is that right? It's, it's um, there's different, um, so flu, the flu vaccine gets updated every year and mm-hmm. we look at the patterns in, for example, Australia, what are the strains circulating? Because like flu is like COVID, where it's constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you update, and sometimes there's a really good match, and sometimes there's not a great match. But but usually it gives you at least some protection against getting influenza, but also getting severe influenza. All right, Chris, thank you very much for your call. Let's go from Mont-Tremblant to Ottawa, and Sheldon Laflamboise is uh, is calling us. Hi, Sheldon. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Appreciate yeah, it. sorry to hear that you you have a nine year old son in hospital. What uh, with RSV? What, what's your question for Doctor Banerjee? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a weird one. Um, so more take this more as like a fact finding mission. Um, so my son started getting a weird leg pain, and at the same time he broke a fever and had cold symptoms. He got over that pretty quickly, but since then he can't walk. Uh, he's trembling. He's falling down. It's pretty brutal and very hard to see his parents. Right, you can get a little choked up thinking about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, so he ended up testing RSV positive when he got to the hospital. And I'm curious if there's any increased rate. I think it's uh, Guillain Barre syndrome or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, or is RSV too new for that sort of thing? Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of just curious what the odds are of having that sort of complication. 
Uh, we're fully vaccinated. We got our COVID and RSV vaccine uh, two weeks prior to that too. So it was a uh, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting ride. Yeah, sorry, sorry to hear all of that, Dr. Banerjee. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. It, might, it must be frightening. Um, so Guillain-Barre is um, something that's not completely understood, and it's like an autoimmune process, an inflammatory process. And sometimes you can have children that have, or adults that can have muscle aches and even paralysis. Uh, for most cases, it reverses over a period of time, but it's pretty frightening. It could be associated with viruses, a lot of different viruses. It can be associated with vaccines. Scenes. Um, a lot of times you don't know what the trigger is, but it's an auto. Most people think of it as an autoimmune phenomena. He he actually had um, HSP. Uh, it's like he knocked apart. We had bad luck <laughs> over yeah. the last five years uh, when he was four. Yeah. Um, any association with that, or is it just like a we rolled really bad luck with autoimmune type issues? Um, I'm not sure if there is anything. Uh, tying them specifically together, but they're both sort of inflammatory um, autoimmune or vasculitis kinds of conditions, and there may be a link, um, but I'm not 100% sure if, if there yeah. is in this case. Sheldon, thank you yeah, yeah. for calling. Yeah, and as I say, we, we definitely uh, feel badly. Hopefully things uh, turn around for you. Uh, Amana Kadir is in St. John's, Newfoundland. Hi, Amana. Hi. Hi, uh, I know you have questions for Dr. Banerjee, and give us a little bit of background about uh, what's happening in your home. Oh, yeah. The, I have a five-year-old daughter. She's going to daycare, and uh, she brought, uh, she, you know, came home with, uh, it looks like cold. And, um, and then uh, we got, and also I have a baby, one month, uh, one month old baby, and uh, he also got. And now my question is, she is feeling better now. Last week, the whole last week, she stays home, and she looks like, uh, you know, I don't know. The question is, what's the parameters like uh, or some assessment criteria to send back her to daycare because uh, she's absent for one week, and uh, and that, uh, how do we you know, like, still I got it also, my, you know, our baby got it, so yeah. there's a high chance she's infected, but what? How do we send her back? Like, yeah, that, 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 that's that's a really interesting question, Amanda. Thank you for for asking it. And Dr. Banerjee, if I understand the question correctly, uh, his uh, his daughter comes home with some sort of illness at daycare. It's bad enough to have her uh, home for a week. How does he assess? At what point, uh, and his daughter's feeling better now, at what point, how does he assess when his daughter, is, it's kind of safe for her to go back to daycare? So before COVID, it used to be, you know, uh, one or two days after the symptoms resolve. Um, but uh, when COVID came, originally it was 10 days at your home because I thought that was the, the transmission period. And then it was five days. But usually if someone is symptomatically better now, because we don't know what virus it is. We don't know if it's COVID, RSV. There's a whole bunch of other viruses. And we know that in daycare, there's a lot of kids with viruses. So uh, usually, you know, five to seven days, you know, if, if this child is home for a week, it should be fine mm -hmm. for them to go back. I mean, as time goes by, they become less and less infectious. And you have to find a balance between keeping a child at home and having them go to school. Mm -hmm. So usually it's, you know, no more fever. You don't want to send a, a kid to school with fever and the symptoms uh, more or less resolving. 
That's great. We have two minutes left for both the question, the ne- our next question and answer. I think we can do it. Debbie White is on the phone from Winnipeg. Hi, Debbie. Hi there. And uh, what's your my call? Yeah, you're really welcome. What's what's your question? So I have three kids. They're uh, six, eight, and ten. And last year, um, I tried to get their COVID boosters, and we ended up getting the flu vaccine just because of supply issues, and that worked out fine actually. And I'm just wondering if there's um, a priority between the two this year, um, or if they should be getting them simultaneously. Great question, Debbie. Dr. Banerjee? I would say get them both. Um, yeah. The COVID vaccine, again, now it's the updated bivalent vaccine, so the original and the one that's more compatible with the circulating strains. So COVID is can be really significant for other people. And, and influenza, if you're going, often pharmacies will, will do both at the same time. And if you do it now, then you could probably have better protection for the actual holiday season. So it's a good thing to do to keep your kids and your friends and family safe. Great. Debbie, thank Debbie, you. yeah, thank you for the call, Dr. Banerjee. We have less than a minute, but a really important question for you, and that is for parents who are listening. At what point, if they have a sick kid, should they think about as they worry about how sick their kid is? Uh, they were at what point should they be taking their kid into the hospital? So um, right now, a lot of hospitals are overwhelmed, and they're saying really don't come in unless you're really sick. But uh, high fever that doesn't go away, lethargy, difficulty breathing, rapid labored breathing. Um, if they're not drinking um, or peeing um, or if their color is off, like if they look uh, dusky or, you know, uh, cyanotic, meaning their oxygen levels are, are dropping, anything like that is very, very concerning and you should go to the emergency department. If your child has a fever and a runny nose and a cough, you don't need to go to the emergency department. It's a viral illness. Um, it doesn't matter if it's influenza or COVID, they'll get better unless there's something else going on. Really good advice, Dr. Banerjee. Thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. Dr. Anna Banerjee is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health and the school's Faculty of Medicine. That's it for Check Up the Podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkups Live, broadcast on CBC Radio from December 10, 2023. If you'd like to share comments or appear on a future show, go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Chuck Mulgat, Katrina McGaughy, and Kiata Greco. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Ivana Stojanovic, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing from Will Yar and Matthias Wolfson. Our program assistant is Hannah Abrahamsey. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Plenner, Steve Howard, and Kate Helmore. Our digital producer, Sinisha Yolich. Senior producer of the program is Richard Goddard. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. And the next edition of Checkup, the podcast, will be posted after the live show. That's next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.